Good morning. Let's go ahead and get started this morning. Good to see uh, each of you here. And uh, in just a minute, I believe Jared's going to come and do our scripture reading, our call to worship. Um, just a couple of reminders, um, if, if you would. You know, I had somebody say something the other day, and I said, well, it's in the bulletin, so please get a bulletin if you want to keep up to date. Most of the stuff in the bulletin is right, so uh, I'm just joking, but but you, you'll keep, stay informed there. But a couple things uh, that we just want to highlight today. Uh, one is a parent meeting for those that have children involved in our Wednesday night program. Lindsay's going to meet with you uh, immediately following the service, and uh, she'll meet back in the, the Sunday school room back there. Uh, so as soon as it's over, she'll be back there. Also, um, starting on uh, the 15th, we're going to have our sign-ups for Grace Marriage, our second year of that. I just encourage you, if, if you're married here, uh, you need to be working on your marriage. So many times, and I've said this before, but so many times we wait till after things are falling apart. We wait till there, there's problems and then people come and want to have counseling and uh, if that's the case, then fine. But why not start before those problems come, the, those little things that are going on in your relationship? Why, why not be proactive? And that's the goal of Grace Marriage. We meet four times in the year. It's on Saturday mornings till the afternoon. We have lunch. We end with lunch. And uh, we go through some marriage material. But so much of it is just giving you an opportunity to, to talk with your spouse and kind of giving you some pointers as far as uh, areas that you might want to discuss with them. So I believe we did reach our uh, goal. In fact, I know we reached our goal. We exceeded it by a little bit uh, for our Annie Armstrong Easter offering. But if you haven't given to that yet, we'll, we'll continue that for one more uh, day just to give people, perhaps if you forgot, uh, to, to be able to, to give to that one last time. So Jared, you go ahead and come at this time. Good morning. It's good to see you guys. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 29 as we have our call to worship this morning. Psalm 29, it is a psalm of David. David writes, Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. The voice of the Lord is over the waters. The God of glory thunders the Lord over many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaks the cedars. The Lord breaks the cedars of Lebanon. He, break, he makes Lebanon skip like a calf and Syrian like a, wild, a young wild ox. The voice of the Lord flashes forth flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shakes the wilderness. The Lord shakes the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare. And in his temple all cry, glory. The Lord sits enthroned over the flood. The Lord sits enthroned as king forever. May the Lord give strength to his people. May the Lord bless his people with peace. And I might add before I pray, as we read through that list and we see all these things that the voice of the Lord does, that's not an exhaustive list because this morning, by the grace of God, the voice of the Lord will call sinners to repentance. By the proclamation of the, the word this morning, God is speaking and God will be offering uh, his grace and mercy to believers. And by listening and applying that truth, the voice of the Lord brings great benefit to our souls. So I would, I would just add that as a reminder for us this morning as we, as we come to worship. Will you pray with me? Father, as we gather here this morning, it is a great privilege to be in your house. It is a great benefit to be able to hear the voice of the Lord. And so what I pray this morning is that a couple of things. God, first of all, that we would be like David and that we would come here this morning to ascribe to your name glory that we would come as worshipers, recognizing that this is not a passive event, that we are not here as spectators to watch people worship God on the stage, that we are not here as spectators to watch somebody lecture and speak about God. We are here as worshipers. We have come together as your ransomed people into the place where you have promised to be as we gather together. And God, we want to meet Christ this morning. 
And so we pray that you would manifest your presence, O Lord, among us, that you would come to bring conviction to those who are in error and those who walk in sin, that you would bring life to those who have not yet breathed life in Christ for the first time. We pray that you would call them out of darkness, out of death, into your glorious kingdom and your marvelous light. God, we we also just want to thank you for the word. We want to thank you this morning that we have the word, that we're not in in an oppressed nation where it's rare to hear the word of God, where there's a famine of the word. God, we are grateful and we praise you and we magnify you that we will hear the voice of the Lord thunder forth from Zion this morning as your word is preached and proclaimed. And so we again pray that it would effectively work to build this body, to strengthen this church, to correct those in error, to draw back those who are wandering, to encourage those who are faint-hearted, and to give life and salvation to those who are in sin. God, we praise you and thank you for this. God, we also would ask that you would help our church to grow, that we would become more faithful, that we would be more on point with our missionary efforts, that we would be more generous with our giving of time and talents, Lord, and and even material resources. And we want to be a beacon of light in our community. But God, help us as our lesson in Sunday school this morning pointed us toward, help us to start with love for the brothers and sisters, that we would see that we are called to have a special love for for our brothers and sisters in Christ because that uniquely marks us out as believers. And we want to to recognize that distinction and we want to express appropriate love within this body, Lord, and to grow in maturity in that kind of love here at Union Baptist Church. And we need your grace and your help to do so. So help us, God. Bring glory to yourself through our singing, through our preaching, through our giving. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. If you would, while they're on their way out, if you grab your Bibles and turn to the book of Ephesians. We're continuing our series in the book of Ephesians, chapter number one. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you all feel about leftovers, uh, but I, I kind of like leftovers. Some things left over uh, in terms of food that, that are better the second time, you know, soup or chili or uh, certain kind of things, you know, the, the second time around, they're, they're even better than, than the first. And uh, this morning is a bit of a sermon of leftovers. Um, we, we went ahead into verses 17 through the end of the chapter last week because I wanted to, to move on to that uh, for uh, the celebration of Easter and remembering the, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And I thought that passage uh, was pertinent to that. Uh, but, but I left some things unsaid uh, in the previous verses that I want to say. And I think that need to be said. So join with me in reading in Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 11. In him, as in Jesus Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also when you heard the word of truth, the the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Well, when we looked at this passage the first time, we talked about the inheritance that we have and we ended up spending so much time and just thinking about what that inheritance was that we didn't really see what is the focal point of all of that is, is that we've been given a guarantee of that inheritance. Let me remind you a few things about this passage. Uh, first of all, we see that this inheritance is in him. That is in Christ. It is through our union with Christ that we talked about. It's through our connection or our association to Jesus Christ that we become sons of God, that we uh, become heirs of God. Remember, we we talked about the fact that Jesus is the only begotten son of the father. He is Hebrews 1, 5, the one who has been appointed heir of all things. But when when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we're united to him. We're associated with him. We are connected to him in such a way that we become children of God. We're adopted into God's family. In Romans chapter 8, 
Verses 16 and 17 says that we're given the spirit of adoption. We, we become sons of God. And as a result of that, we become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. So Hebrews says that Jesus is the heir of all things. And when we believe we're united to him, we become fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. We are heirs of God, heirs of all things. Uh, and, and so what a wonderful, wonderful truth. We talked about what does that mean in a, in a tangible way? What are the things that we inherit? And we, we talked about the fact that we uh, see that it's a glorious inheritance. So in verse 18, we see that, that Paul prays for them, that their eyes would be enlightened and that they would know the riches of this glorious inheritance. We saw that part of that inheritance is the fact that we inherit the kingdom of God. James 2.5 says that, that, that we are heirs of the kingdom. You know, the Bible teaches in the new heavens and new earth that we are going to reign over it with Jesus Christ. He's going to be the king, but we're going to be his vice regents. We are going to rule over the new heavens and new earth. We saw that God's people will inherit the earth. We see that in Psalm 37, verse 29, Matthew 5, 5, that the, the meek inherit the earth. So we will inherit this new heavens and new earth. We, we receive as our, our inheritance eternal life. Paul says in three, uh, Titus 3, 7, that we are heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And we talked about how as much as your parents can leave you some wonderful things when they die, there's one thing that they cannot leave you, and that is life itself. But when God is your father, he possesses life in himself. And so he is able to give to his children life and we have eternal life. We also inherit the protection of God's angels. Hebrews 1.14 says that the angels are ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. But we said really the, the main uh, importance of what we inherit as God's children is that we inherit God himself. We get to be in union and in relationship. We have a restored relationship with God, our heavenly father. That's a, the greatest thing it, that, that we could inherit is, is God himself. The psalmist says that in Psalm 16, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. And that beautiful inheritance is the Lord, who's his chosen portion. Well, to sum it up, we said, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, 9, that we are going to inherit things that no eye has seen and no ear has ever heard. How great and how wonderful the things are that God has prepared for us. The question we might have with all of that is, is that sometimes we don't have certainty. Sometimes we, we have doubt. I, I think most of us struggle. M most of us are probably skeptical when we hear promises that sound really good. And the reason that we struggle with receiving these kind of promises and really believing them in the depth of our soul is that this world has taught us over and over and over again that you cannot trust good promises. We, we look to relationships and we think that there's promise in, in relationship that this will be the one, that this guy will, will be the one that will, will, will be perfect for me. And then it falls through. This job will be the one that gives me financial security. And then there are layoffs. This diet will be the one to help me get my health under control. And, and then it falls through. We're not able to keep up with it. Life has repeatedly taught us again and again and again even in recent days, right? That some things that are said to be inviolable are not inviolable. Uh, some things that are said to be certain, that are said to be sure things are not really sure things. And we've seen it over and over and over again. And the result of this is that we all become skeptical. We, we all begin to view life in a pessimistic, a pessimistic way. We don't trust promises when we hear some something what's our mantra right you, you hear something that's too good to be true then it isn't true if it's good it can't be true we say things like I'll believe it when I see it why because life has taught us that that's just the way it is you, you get some kind of promise and you cannot 
trusted. Well, the, the problem with that is, is that skepticism that's produced by the harsh realities of our world has an impact on the way that we view God's promises, I think. I think sometimes we've been so conditioned by the disappointments of this life that when we read the word of God and it says that we're going to inherit a new heavens and new earth, that we are going to reign with Jesus Christ, that we will inherit life itself. It just seems too good to be true. And we're not altogether assured that it really is true. Well, this morning, what I want you to know is that God, if you are his child, if you truly have faith in Jesus Christ, God wants you to be assured of his promises. He wants you to be certain that the things that he has promised to you really are true. So we saw last week, didn't we, that, that Paul was praying for them, that, that the spirit of God would, uh, the spirit of wisdom and revelation uh, would, would reveal this to them in such a way that it was real. But, but what we see this morning is that Paul is pointing to them to some truths that ought to be the bedrock of our assurance. When we grasp the truths that we look at this morning, God, God wants us to rest in those things and to have assurance that when he makes promises to us, he is not like politicians. He is not like uh, friends that, that leave you and desert you, that he is true. And so he's guaranteed it. Let me give you an, an illustration. This, this promise here that we have of an inheritance and of receiving these, these things, it's more than, than just a promise. It's more than just mere words. And thankfully, God has done that for us. Let me give you an illustration that might help you understand where we're headed this morning. Imagine this morning that you got some kind of email or some kind of notification, something sent to you uh, that claimed to be from Warren Buffett and it claimed one of the richest men uh, to ever live and it claimed that he was going to give you five million dollars. I think most of us if we see that we're going to just discard that right away. Again I'll believe it when I see it. Life has taught us we don't trust that. I don't, I don't think that's real. We're very skeptical and rightly so in this fallen and broken world. But now imagine a different scenario in which Warren Buffett shows up at your house personally and, and his personal presence is there and he tells you personally, I am going to give you $5 million. Well, that would, I think, help our, give us confidence even more that maybe this really is true. But, but imagine not only that, but he says, look, I'm not going anywhere. I'm staying right here with you. I'm going to be here until that $5 million is delivered. And so his personal presence was going to stay with us. He was going to be with us until we received what he had promised us. Well, then I think we would start to grow in our confidence with this really must be true. He's not going anywhere. This really is Warren Buffett. He's, he's here. This is, this is real. Now let's just take it. One step even further, just to illustrate, I think, what's going on in this passage. One, one more step, and that is this. What if he showed up and he already had a tenth of that $5 million with him? And he said, here it is. Here, here is $500,000. This is a pledge. Look, I'm telling you, I'm going to give you $5 million, and here's a tenth of it, so you know that, that I'm not pulling your chain. This is real. This is legitimate. Well, at that point, we may still have some doubts, uh, but they would not be well-founded. Here he is personally with us. He's staying with us till, till we get it, and he's already given us a tenth of what he's promised. Well, I think that's what this passage, and we're going to unpack how that all fits together, but I think, I think that is what this passage is saying that God has done for us. He hasn't just left his promise to you that one day you'll inherit the kingdom of God. One day you'll inherit heaven. One day you'll inherit eternal life. One day you'll have perfect fellowship with me. He hasn't just left it as mere words. He's given us some assurances in our life right here and right now that these promises really are true. The first way that he's done that is that he's come to us personally and that he sealed us. Look at verse 13. In him, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel 
of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. We're gonna talk about what it means to be sealed with the Spirit, but, but what we just wanna see right now is that God's presence is with you right now. He's saying, look, I'm gonna make sure that you get this inheritance and as a sign that that, that that really is true, that I really am going to bring about all that I've promised to you. Here is my Spirit. And so he seals us with his Holy Spirit. The second thing that he's done in giving us his Holy Spirit is that he gives us a down payment. He gives us earnest money, if you wanna think of it in that way, because that's really what this word means in verse 14. We were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, verse 13, verse 14, who is the guarantee. He's the down payment. He's the earnest money, so to speak, of all of the promises of God. So not only has he come and been with us and stayed with us in his personal presence, but he's already given us part of the inheritance in the Holy Spirit. So let's just take some time to unpack those two things. We're going to focus primarily on that first one. God has sealed us with his spirit. Now, when we we talk about sealing something, uh, there are different customs and different practices uh, in different places and different times of the world when it comes to sealing something. And so sometimes it's hard to know exactly what practices or what culture uh, that, that Paul was drawing on to know exactly what he means when he says that we're sealed with the Holy Spirit. However, I will say this, the, the practice of using some sort of seal or stamp as, as a guarantee, uh, as a sign of approval, uh, is, is something that's been... Uh, pretty much unanimous in in most cultures of the world. And the things that have been accomplished by that seal, I think, although they happen in different ways, ultimately really are the same at the end of the day. And so let's, let's just unpack this. What does it mean to be sealed with the Holy Spirit? Well, when we look to the Old Testament, we see the practice of, of sealing things. Uh, and, and it was used, obviously, a lot of times by, by kings. This was one of the primary uh, uses of it. A, a king might have, say, a ring, something with a stamp uh, with his symbol or some kind of stone with a symbol cut into it. And then they would take something like hot wax and, and something that was impressionable. And so they might write a letter and then they would seal it. They put that wax over it and they would stamp their seal of approval on it. This, this really is from this king. Uh, this edict really was given by this king. And the way that you verify that is because his seal is upon it. And so when we look uh, to the Old Testament, we see this used multiple different times. We see in Daniel chapter six, you remember Daniel thrown in the lion's den, the, the, the king had made a decree and Daniel prayed to God. And so they threw him in the lion's den. In Daniel six seventeen, it says this, and a stone was brought and laid on the mouth of the den and the king sealed it with his own signet and with the signet of his lords that nothing might be changed concerning Daniel. What this is saying was this is an act of the king. This is something that he has done. It is sealed with his signet so that you know this act was his. It's, it, it shows ownership. First Kings, we see uh, Jezebel. You remember Jezebel, the, the wicked queen, and uh, she wanted to steal the vineyard of Naboth. And so she wrote letters and she did something kind of tricky, which, which is interesting. I'll bring this up. They've actually found what they believe to be is a, a seal of Queen Jezebel. Uh, archaeologists have found that and you could find that on the internet. There's a picture of it on there. It, it's pretty neat. But, but Jezebel didn't use her seal. She had her own seal. She wanted this to come with the authority of King Ahab. And so she took his seal and wrote letters and stamped it with the seal of Ahab. Listen to 1 Kings 21.8. So she, Jezebel, wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed with his seal. And she sent the letters to the elders and to the leaders who lived with Naboth in his city. Now, what did that do? That indicated to the people who were receiving those letters that the ownership of these letters, 
that the authority that was backing these letters was the authority not of Jezebel, but it was the authority of, of King Ahab. These letters were from him. He owned them. It, they, they were his. We see this one more time, one more illustration of this in Esther. You know the, the plot in, in the book of Esther for the Jews to be destroyed and Haman had tried to kill the destroys uh, or, or to destroy the Jews, but, but God reversed that plan. And at the end of it, the king said, listen, Mordecai and Esther, you all have my backing. You can write anything that you want, any kind of decree that you want concerning the Jews, and I will give you my seal. Listen to Esther 8, verse 8. But you may write as you please with regard to the Jews in the name of the king and seal it with the king's ring. Now listen to this. For an edict written in the name of the king and sealed with the king's ring cannot be revoked. Why could it not be revoked? Because this was the sign of his ownership. This was a sign of authenticity. This had come from the king. And so to violate this edict, to violate what was written and, and stamped with the seal of the king was to violate the king. When we ask ourselves, what was the main thing accomplished? Because I think as, as we kind of unpack this, we want to come back to Ephesians and say, what is God saying here? As we unpack that, what, what is the main thing that is occurring when, when it comes to seals? And it is this, it's a mark of ownership. Everything else flows from that. But primarily, when we think about the use of seals, whatever culture it's from, the primary thing that it does is to denote ownership. This is of King Ahasuerus. This is uh, from King Ahab. This is his writing. This is his authority. It denotes ownership. Now, depending on who owned that depends on the effects of that, right? If I write something and I've got some kind of seal, doesn't mean much, does it, right? But if you're the, the, the king of the Roman Empire, you're the, the king in Israel, and you own something, and you say, I'm saying this, I'm stamping it, this is mine. It comes with the full authority, it comes with the full security of the kingdom. Now, as we come to the New Testament, we see the use of, of these seals. We see that God set his seal uh, on Jesus Christ. We'll look at that in a minute, I'm getting ahead of myself. We, we see, first of all, uh, the, the seal that is used in, in the New Testament when it comes to the tomb. So in Matthew 27, uh, verse 65, it says this, Pilate said to them, because they had heard rumors that Jesus' disciples said that he would rise again. Jesus said that in three days he would rise again. And so we want to make sure nobody steals the body and no rumors get started. So Pilate said to them, you have a guard of soldiers. Go and make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure. How did they do that? Two things. I think these are separate, but even if they're connected, I think, I think it's the same effect. Two ways that they made it secure. They made the tomb secure by sealing the stone, by putting, by, by putting the seal of the Roman Empire on there, and then setting a guard. So there are those two things. Here's the identity. Here's the ownership, right? And, and because of that, the authority of the Roman Empire is saying, look, he's in this tomb. Don't mess with his body. Don't take it out. If you tamper with this in some way, you are, you are going against, you are violating the authority of the Roman Empire. And the second thing that it did was security. That there were, there were guards there who were guarding it. I mean, you had to be somebody. You had to be some kind of skilled soldier to be able to break through that security. There were Roman centurions guarding it. So, so there's the authority and there, the, there is the security, but it all comes from that, that sense of ownership. This is of the Roman Empire. So it comes with all the security and all of the authority that, that Rome has. Now, I don't want to get off track here. And, and Easter was last week. But that seal was broken. You see, somebody with greater authority and somebody with greater power broke that seal. And so we can praise the Lord uh, for that. But that's, that's the key. It has to be somebody either with greater authority or greater power to break the seal. We see that another example of this is that God set his seal on Jesus Christ. 
John 6, 27, Jesus says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him, that is on the Son of Man, that is on Jesus, God the Father has set his seal. In other words, God owned Jesus Christ. This is my son. Remember the baptism? This is my son in whom I am well pleased. I'm owning him. And because of that, all of the authority of God rested on Jesus Christ and all the security of God's power rested upon Jesus Christ. Nobody could touch him unless it was the plan of God. And so that ownership of God gave authority. It gave security. Well, when we... Uh, come to this passage then. I think that's what this is is showing here. The seal in in Ephesians chapter one is the Holy Spirit. God doesn't just mark us, and I'm jumping ahead of myself here, but he doesn't just mark us with with some uh, impression, but the seal that he gives to us is his own personal presence. You know, the, the, the stamp of Jezebel or the stamp, the, the seal of, of Ahab uh, just represented them. It was some kind of symbol that pointed people to say that, hey, this belongs to Ahab or this belongs to Jezebel. This belongs to Ahasuerus. Uh, it, it pointed to them. But when it comes to us being sealed by God, he doesn't just put some kind of mark on us or some kind of uh, some kind of stamp. He gives us his own personal presence. He is here with us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you have the Holy Spirit of God, God himself dwelling with you. God is saying, this is my child. And he sets his seal upon us. It is his personal presence. Now, what we notice about these seals is is that these seals were meant to be a guarantee for the thing to which they were sealed. So if it's a letter that's been sealed, right? It's sealed to make sure that it gets to whoever it's going to. When when Jezebel wrote those letters to the elders of Israel, she sent them out. The the purpose of that was to let them know that that these letters need to go to these individuals. Let them know it's authenticated. But, But it gets it securely to the place that it is going. That's the intended purpose. The goal, the seal on the letter was the guarantee that the letter would get to the person for whom it was intended. The seal on the stone, whether it was the stone that was placed in front of the the lion's den or whether it was the stone placed in front of the tomb when when Christ was was buried, the, the seal on that stone ensured that the stone would not be removed until that night had passed in Daniel's case. It's, it's for a purpose. It's, it's to an end. We want to get this to a certain place. Well, we've got to ask ourselves, what is our intended goal? For what purpose has God sealed us? Well, look again at verse number 14. Who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it? God's got a plan for you. He's got promises he's going to fulfill to you. And these promises are sure because he has stamped his authority. He has stamped his ownership on you. And he's saying, I'm going to get you there. There's an intended goal. There's an intended purpose. There's a time in which all of these promises will be fully fulfilled. And until that time, I've got got my seal on you to make sure that you get securely there. If you want to jump over to Ephesians 4.30, it's, I think, teaching the same thing. It says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. You see, there's a redemption day coming. There's a day that God is going to fully welcome you into his family. There's a day in which you will be fully and finally redeemed and all of the promises of God will will be fulfilled to you. But until that day, you've been sealed with the Holy Spirit. God's ownership, his authority and his protection is on your life. Well, just like these seals that we find in in the use in, in the Bible and even in our day, 
They carry the authority of the one who sealed them and the security that comes with that. And so it is with God's seal. You've been sealed if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. And with that seal comes all of the authority and comes all of the power of God. I told you the only way a seal could be broken is if there was someone with more authority or more power. In the case of Jesus, that's what happened. God raised Jesus up. He had more authority, more power than the Roman Empire. Praise God. But in this case, we've got to ask ourselves, is there anyone or anything who has more authority or more power than God? Who's going to be able to break the seal on your life? Who's going to be able to to mess things up so that the promises of God that he has made to you won't come true? We're used to that happening, right? We're used to getting our hopes up. We're used to thinking this is going to happen. It's going to be so wonderful. And then someone or something comes along and messes it all up. But listen, you've been sealed in such a way that someone with greater power or greater authority is going to be the one who does that. And there is no one with greater power or greater authority than God himself. Who has the authority to override God's decree? If if what is said here in Ephesians 1, that he has chosen you in Christ before the foundation of the world, if, if the son has given his life to redeem you and to save you, if God has made these promises to you, who has more authority than God? Who is going to be able to reverse that decree? Is there some kind of higher court of appeal? Well, God, we know, is the highest authority. No one can reverse the decision of Almighty God. First Chronicles 29, 11 says, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in heaven, that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Listen, God's made promises to you. He has given a seal of his Holy Spirit to verify the authenticity and the the truthfulness of that. And he has all authority and, and all power. No one is going to be able to reverse that decree. Who has greater power than God, right? Uh, no, no one has greater power than the Lord. You know, Nebuchadnezzar maybe thought that he had some great power. He thought he was an almighty king. Remember that in, in Daniel? But God brought him to his knees. God displayed, no, no, Nebuchadnezzar, I'm the one that has the power. And after everything that happened to Nebuchadnezzar, this, these are his words in Daniel 4.34. At the end of the days, I, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing and he does according to his will among the hosts of the heavens and among all the inhabitants of the earth and no one can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? No one's able to stop the hand of God. No one's able to stop the hand of God in your salvation. If God has promised things to you, if he has decreed to save you from eternity past, no one is going to override that. No one has greater power than that. Listen, let me just say this and kind of make a doctrinal application. Uh, There are some Christians who, who believe, I think wrongly, that maybe you could be saved and then later on you could be unsaved. You, you could be saved at one moment and then later on you could lose your salvation. Now, I, I do want to say, uh, and, and this is important, that the Bible does teach that we must persevere in our faith, that the test of the genuineness of our faith, that it's authentic, is that it continues, all right? That, that we don't apostatize, that we don't walk away from the faith. And so uh, given the caveat that we understand we're talking about people with real faith, who have truly been born of God, if that's the case, doesn't this kind of counteract the idea that maybe you could be saved and then lost later? Right? A seal has to be broken. God 
has put his seal on you. He's made these promises. He, there's no way that, these, that he's going to go back on this. There, there's no way that he's going to reverse himself. And, and no one else can, can bring a reversal in these things. So we ought to have security as believers if we truly are believers in, in Christ. Listen to the confidence that we ought to have. Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, I'm sure of this. Talking about the Philippian believers, Paul says, look, I'm sure of this, confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. If God has decreed something, if he's planned it, if he's promised it, he's going to do it. If he set his seal on you, he is going to make sure that you receive the promises that he has made. Peter tells us in 1 Peter uh, chapter 1 that we have this inheritance waiting for us in heaven. It's being guarded. But then he says this, it's in he- kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith. God in all of his power is guarding you. He's protecting you. He's keeping you. Listen, we understand, right? If it was up to me, I'd lose my salvation every minute of every day. If it was up to me, I would stray. I would wonder. But the reality is, ultimately, it's not up to us. Praise God. He set his seal on us. He's given us his Holy Spirit. And he is the one who's keeping us. We're kept not by my power, not by my wisdom. We're kept by the power of God. And so we can have assurance. Believer, you can be confident of this. If you have truly believed in Christ, you have been sealed with Almighty God's personal presence and He will see to it that the promises He's made to you come true, that He carries them through. Well, there's one more thing that is said here and this is a a separate analogy. It goes kind of along with that. But not only are we sealed by the Holy Spirit, but God has also given us a guarantee. You see that in, in verse Uh, 14, the first thing in verse 13, you are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. Verse 14, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. It's the guarantee. This word guarantee is a word that was used in their common language, in in their trade. Uh, It's a word for earnest. It's an earnest or or a down payment or, or a guarantee. We all know what that is, right? If you want to buy a car, you've got to put a down payment on it. This is a pledge uh, that's saying, I'm going to follow through, that I'm going to make the rest of these payments to you. There's more to come, but here's an initial installment to, to show my genuineness and to show my intention to pay the rest. If you buy a house or a car, any of these things, we, we understand it. It acts as a pledge that you intend to pay the full amount. So what this is saying then is that God has given us an assurance of our inheritance by giving us a down payment of it. Romans 8.23 says this, and not only the creation, but we ourselves have the first fruits of the Spirit. We groan inwardly as we await uh, eagerly the adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. It's the Spirit here is referred to as the first fruits this is, this is kind of a parallel analogy that, again, I think helps us understand what, when he's talking about a down payment or first fruits. We understand what first fruits are, right? You plant a garden, it starts to grow. There, there are some that come out early, right? And, and what is that? It's, it's a sign that there's life. It's a sign that there's more to come. This is the first one, but there's going to be more. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the first fruits, He's given to us in such a way that we know that more promises of God are going to be fulfilled. But here we have this down payment. We have the first fruits. It's a guarantee. And so this is what Matthew Henry said. This deposit makes it as sure to the heirs as though they already possessed it. And it is purchased for them by the blood of Christ. If you have received the Holy Spirit, you have God's pledge. 
You have his down payment on the inheritance, on all of those promises that we talked about. He's saying, look, I'm going to come through. I'm going to follow through with everything that I've pledged to you. And here is a sign that that, that, that really will happen. I'm going to give you part of that inheritance right now. And that's one of the things that we need to understand about this, the, the Holy Spirit. The, the, the payment is always part of part of what we're paying, right? When you make a down payment, if you buy a car for $5,000, you make a $500 down payment. You don't owe $5,000 anymore. You've made part of the payment already. You, you've paid $500, so now you owe how much class? $4,500, right? It's part of, that, that down payment is part of the whole. And so it is with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is part of our inheritance. You see, he's not just given to us as, as a means to an end, like, hey, here's the Holy Spirit. He'll make sure that you get your inheritance. What he's saying here is, here's the Holy Spirit. He is part of your inheritance. This is part of the whole. Spirit is not just a means to the end. The Spirit is himself part of our inheritance that we've already received in this life. Just think about what the Spirit does for us. All the promises that we talked about before, part of our inheritance, things like eternal life and a a new heavens and a new earth, a a resurrection body, fellowship with God. We said all of those things were part of our inheritance. Well, guess what? The Holy Spirit is the one who brings all those things about. So so when we talk about uh, the fact that we're even sons of God, we know that Romans 8.15 says that we have received the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit is the one who in the first place makes us a son of God. We are sons of God because we've received the Spirit. The Spirit is the one who gives us this new life that's promised. He's the one that gives us eternal life. The Spirit is the one that will raise us up. Uh, Romans 8 verse 11 says this, and if the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, In other words, if you have the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit raised Jesus from the dead. If his spirit's in in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of the spirit who lives in you. So the promise of the resurrection comes about through the working of the spirit. The spirit, we said the greatest part of our inheritance is that we get God, that we get fellowship, that we get communion with God. And guess what? It is through the Holy Spirit that we right now have fellowship and communion with God. The the promise of heaven. It is the Spirit who is right now making us holy and sanctifying us and making us fit, making us prepared so that we can enter into glory. That's the work of the Holy Spirit right now. So this inheritance that we've been promised is not just pie in the sky, all, all just words, all just talk. It's something that we have already in part received. Now, no doubt there's more to come, isn't there? But we've already received a part of it. It's already at work in us and we can be guaranteed of it. Listen, this morning, maybe you have been through life in such a way that you've experienced some things that just has really have really made you skeptical that you really doubt. You you might be that person who says, look, I I don't believe anything until I see it. And I understand that when it comes to the world. But listen, God wants you this morning, if you're his child, God wants you to have assurance. Here's one thing you need to know if if you're a believer. This feeling of security may come and go. Do you feel secure? Do you feel like the promises of God are true? They're absolute right now. I hope you do. But sometimes that feeling comes and goes, doesn't it? The feeling of security comes and goes. But the reality of our security doesn't come and go. It's always there. You know, there are moments where I'm walking with the Lord and where everything seems great and I seem confident. My faith is strong in the promises of God. And there are other moments where there is doubt in my heart, where I'm a sinner and and I don't feel the assurance of God. But guess what? I'm just as sure here as I am here. I'm just as secure all the time because it's not based on how I feel at the moment. It's based on God and God has given you a guarantee and he's put his seal on you. It's the seal of your of the Holy Spirit. If you don't feel assurance, it isn't because you are not secure. 
if you're a child of God. I keep prefacing with that. If you do not feel that assurance, it isn't because you are not secure. If you don't feel assurance, it is because you are not walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit. If we walk in the flesh, you remember that passage in Ephesians 4.30 that said, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you are sealed until the day of redemption. For some of us, the reason we're not experiencing assurance as believers is because we're grieving the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave us. There's there's one of the signs, right, that we know that we're secure. The, The Spirit, when we fall into sin, He doesn't say, okay, I'm out of here. You're on your own now, and we lose our salvation. No, it says don't grieve the Holy Spirit. He stays with us. He remains with us. And yet that fellowship with the Spirit and with God can be broken at times because of our sin. And for some of you, you're not experiencing the assurance that God pro- God's promises are true, that, that His salvation is real, and these things are going to really come about. And you're not experiencing that because you're walking in sin. You're not experiencing that because you're looking at pornography or you're, 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 you're part, taking part in gossip or, or, or you're not in the word or, or any other number of sins that you've just allowed to reign temporarily in your life. And because of that, you're grieving the spirit. You're not experiencing close fellowship with him and you have no assurance that this is all real. God wants you to have that assurance. He wants you to walk every day knowing, as we talked about last last week, that these promises are absolutely true without a doubt. Well, how do we get to that place? Well, the Spirit works sovereignly and He can give assurance and He can can bring about a, a revelation that we talked about. He can give us insight anytime that He chooses. But but so often He does when we begin to when we begin to take process or take part in the process of sanctification, when we start to put sin out of our life, when we start to once again repent of things that have cropped up one again in our life and we start to say, you know, I've got back into that. I need to turn away from those things again and follow the Lord in a more devoted way. As we get rid of sin, as we draw near to God through his word, the spirit so often works through his word, if you're not reading the Bible, if you're not listening to good preaching, if you're not in the word of God, uh, you're probably not going to be experiencing a lot of that assurance. But as we draw near to God through his word and prayer, we will experience fellowship with the spirit and he undoubtedly will produce that feeling of assurance in our hearts. Listen, as we close this morning to Romans 8, 16, the spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. The spirit of God produces that feeling. I know I'm a child of God. He gives us that assurance. He bears witness with our spirits that we are children of God. And if children, if we really are children of God, then we are heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Jesus Christ. The spirit is the one who gives us that assurance. Draw near to him today. Pray with me. Our Heavenly Father, we pray for every believer here that you would produce this assurance in in their hearts. Lord, uh, we know that our security doesn't change. If we really are your children, we are absolutely uh, confident and we are absolutely secure in your promises and you've guaranteed it. But Lord, in this life, our, our hearts are fickle and they're up and down. Our faith is, is weak at best. And so we need a work of your spirit to assure us of these things. I pray, Lord, that you would, uh, that you would open the eyes of each believer here and give them a spirit of wisdom and revelation that they may know the riches of this glorious inheritance, that, that it may be real to them. Help us to experience that assurance. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.